0: Welcome to Next Normal, the podcast that is reimagining capitalism and exploring the ways that money can do so much more than just make more money. Here is your host, the co-founder of the Global Impact Investing Network, Ahmed Buri.
1: Hello to our Next Normal listeners around the world. Since our launch last year, this podcast has focused on reimagining the next normal in our global economic system. And today's guest has been recommended to us more frequently than any other guest for our show. ai Jin Poo is Executive Director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance and a 2014 MacArthur Fellowship recipient. Her labor activism has placed her at the global forefront of the growing conversation around the care economy, a conversation that has become only more urgent during the pandemic. She also offers invaluable perspective on invisible and undervalued workers worldwide. Workers who are the primary engine of status quo capitalism, but clearly not the recipients of its outsized rewards. She brings the vision and innovative approach that we strive to highlight here. ai we're delighted to have you on Next Normal. Welcome.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Amit. I'm so excited to talk to you.
1: I'm excited to talk to you as well. As I mentioned, you've been recommended many, many times, and we have a number of mutual friends, and I really am so impressed by your work, and I can't wait to talk about how it connects to our global economic system. But first, I actually wanted to start on a more personal note. I know that your work has been shaped by your experience as a child of immigrants, um, by watching your mother and grandmother do caregiving for their own family and for many others. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a bit of that origin story and how you arrived on that path?
0: Yeah, I was raised by some very strong women, like many of us, uh, my mom and my grandmother. And, you know, I just thought they could do anything. I thought they walked on water because I saw them constantly caring, working, making everything in our lives happen. They were working, my mom as a doctor, my grandmother as a nurse, and then they also took care of the family, the community. Um, growing up around my grandmother, I had a thousand aunties <laughs> and I, I didn't actually know who was a blood auntie or who wasn't. And it just felt like every weekend was full of visits to our elders in the community and a lot of caregiving all around. And I think I always assumed that given how much women were powering in our lives, that they would ultimately be in charge of (laughs) decision-making in our lives and in society. And I think growing up, I slowly started to realize that that wasn't the case, that in fact, women's work is powering so much, and yet women are still overly represented in positions of vulnerability and abuse and underrepresented in positions of power and decision making. And so I think that's part of what led me on this path. As I became older, I I was so close to my grandparents. And so as they became older and more frail and needed more care, I really watched as we struggled as a family to find the kind of caregiving supports and resources that would allow them to age with dignity as they um, needed more assistance in their lives. And that struggle became really painful with my grandfather, who ended up in a nursing home against his wishes in the final days of his life when we couldn't find the right caregiving for him at home. And my grandmother had a very different experience where she did have a lot of support in the home and had a very different quality of life and experience. And the contrast between the experience and the quality of life for those that we love when there is support in place versus when there isn't, it was just so striking to me. And I think really filled out a picture of how incomplete our caregiving systems and infrastructures are and how many people are failed by them in our society.
1: Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And and there's a lot about what you've said that really resonates with me. Um, I was also uh, raised by a very strong immigrant mom, a single mother um, since I was three. And We are very low income growing up. And so we luckily benefited from the generosity of a community that really helped take care of us Um, so she could put herself through school and begin her career. And I think this point about the importance of uh, including so many folks who are so essential to the functioning of our society and our economy is so powerful. One of the things that I'm I'm really interested in is just as, as you've been doing this organizing and advocacy work for 20 years now. I imagine the past year and a half of the pandemic has been unlike anything that preceded it. Um, we have a lot of discussion about you know what's essential and who's visible and invisible. What have you seen across your broad network of care workers and other invisible workers?
0: Well, for domestic workers, the nannies, the house cleaners, and the home care workers who work inside of our homes providing caregiving services, that are essential, that work is, by definition, work that has to be done in person. And so as soon as we were social distancing and quarantining, those workers lost their jobs and their income overnight. 82% of domestic workers came into the pandemic without a single paid sick day. And the wages are incredibly low, so there's not savings. So as soon as people lost their income, we were dealing with food insecurity issues overnight. We had a Zoom meeting early in 2020, in March of 2020, where some of our members gathered and one of them held up her phone to the Zoom camera to show us that there was literally one cent left in her bank account. And the majority of domestic workers are primary income earners for their families and mothers of young children. And so it was just an immediate devastating crisis for those who continue to work as essential workers. I'm thinking about the home care workers who are an essential lifeline to some of the people who were most vulnerable to the virus itself, like the elderly and people with disabilities. These home care workers, I mean, talk about essential. These home care workers were delivering medication, food. They were often the only form of social contact that people had for months on end. And they had to figure out how to get to work safely, often paying out of pocket for safer modes of transportation to and from work, paying for their own PPE, their own COVID tests without health care. And the average annual income of a home care worker is $17,000 per year. And it's a workforce that is overwhelmingly women and majority women of color. And so it just gives you a sense of the impossible realities for those who lost all of their income and those who continued to work. It's just been a devastating time.
1: Thank you for sharing that. And and I think it's you it know, says a lot about the broader system that we live in. I wonder if you can share a little bit about how your learnings from your network, uh, what they say about the bigger picture. On Next Normal, we always ask every guest to summarize the underlying problem with the status quo economic system. Uh, I know that's a really big question, but I, I do, <laughs> um, you know, from your vantage point and from everything you just shared, what do you think this says about the issues with our broader economic system as we know it today?
0: Well, I really like big questions um, because I think that those are what we have to grapple with in this period. For me and our community, what has just become so strikingly clear is that our economic system has completely undervalued and invisibilized a huge part of the economy that we call the care economy. And it's the part of the economy that helps us take care of our children, our loved ones with disabilities, our aging parents, which is the most fundamental task of humanity. We all have people that we love, that we are responsible for caring for, and it's one of our most important roles. And we need support in order to do that. And we have an economy that is built around that, where we have a lot of family caregivers who are working full-time jobs and on top of that, providing what's almost the equivalent of a full-time job's worth of care for their own families without any support or respite. And then we have a care workforce of millions of people, vast majority women and disproportionately women of color, whose profession it is to support us, but who struggle in that profession because of the poverty wages that they earn. Everything in this part of our economy has either been made invisible or has been devalued to the extent that it's completely unsustainable for everyone involved. And our cultural narrative has supported that devaluing and that invisibilization, if that's a word, (laughs) by saying that it is the purview of individual households, individual families, and women in particular to handle, and that it is a personal responsibility and an individual responsibility. And if you cannot actually manage, or afford the care that you need, it's a personal failure as opposed to a structural problem that is a part of our economic model that is outdated, to say the least, and deeply, profoundly unjust and unsustainable. And so I think what we have in this moment is a reveal coming out of the pandemic that this part of our economy is actually essential. And as we all dealt with kids home from school, daycares closed down, nursing homes on lockdown, parents isolated thousands of miles away, I think we all experienced our own version of a care crisis that I think is a really big opening for us to think differently about care as an essential part of our economy and how we invest in it in a whole new way for the next era.
1: And I want to build on that that point about a personal care crisis in conjunction with a systemic crisis that, you know, that was happening throughout the care economy. You've said that times of a disruption are the greatest opportunities for transformation and change. I've been thinking about the same idea as well. And as Arundhati Roy, the Indian author and activist wrote The pandemic could be a portal toward a different normal, our next normal, uh, which inspired the name of this podcast, actually. Could you tell us about your vision of what a transformed economic system could look like? What is the end goal, and, and what would it feel like for workers?
0: I think a transformed economic system would be one where there is a whole new relationship between the market, government, and people where the role of the market and government is to work together to meet the needs of people. And the way that I can best describe this is the part of the economy that I know the best, which is the care economy. Imagine if we had a care economy where childcare, paid family medical leave and long-term care were universally available and accessible to everyone who needed it, enabling all of us to participate in the economy and in the workforce, realize our potential for all the ways in which we want to contribute, knowing that our families actually have the care that they need and that every worker who's working in the care economy, providing that support, earns a living wage with real economic security and opportunity. Family sustaining wage, where those caregivers could know that their families are also going to be safe and secure and have real opportunity, that is actually within reach it is not some pipe dream. right? We could invest in universal access to childcare and to long-term care in a way that would actually unleash huge amounts of human potential and ensure a dignified quality of life for the massive and growing aging population we have around the world. It's one of those clear examples of an economic restructure that is such a win-win and seems so obvious and simple and yet we haven't quite been able to make the shift and i i do think that this disruption of the pandemic which has disrupted everything about the way that we live and work and care is the single biggest opening to rebuild in that direction of generations.
1: Well, I think it's an incredibly compelling vision, and I'd love to spend a little bit more time kind of unpacking the different elements of it. Um, You you talked about what it'd be like for workers and that this is within reach, which I think is incredibly powerful uh, because we do surface ideas on this podcast that seem beyond our grasp at the moment. And when you talk about this new relationship between you know, the market, the government, and people, do you have a view on what you'd like to see from the government to help support this? And also what you'd like to see from the private sector, you know, from companies and the financial markets to help enable this vision that you outlined?
0: Absolutely, and it's so timely that we're having this conversation because in Congress there is a live debate about how much to invest in our caregiving programs and systems as part of the president's Build Back Better agenda. The president actually committed to investing, for example, $400 billion in home and community-based services for the elderly and people with disabilities, The intention of that commitment is to both expand access to care for the people who need it and there are literally almost a million people waiting on waiting lists who are eligible for these services who can't get access to them because of lack of funding in the program and the money would raise wages and make home care jobs good jobs with living wages and real economic security. Living wage jobs that allow for this workforce to sustain itself, right now we have huge rates of turnover because the average annual income of a home care worker is $17,000 per year. Sometimes we lose our best caregivers to other low-wage service jobs like fast food or retail because they can earn more money doing that work and, and better make ends meet. So what we have here is the opportunity to secure jobs that are here to stay with a growing aging population in the United States and in developed countries around the world. We need more care than ever before. So there's a demand for these jobs. Home care is actually one of the fastest growing occupations in our entire economy. As a result, these are jobs that can't be outsourced, They're not going to be automated, right? There's not yet an algorithm for empathy. So we need humans doing this work. And we have this incredible opportunity to make these jobs good jobs, just like we turned manufacturing jobs in the 20s and 30s from dangerous sweatshop jobs that a lot of immigrant women did to good jobs with real pathways to economic mobility where one generation could do better than the next. That's what we can do with care jobs. And the president's plan also includes big investments in childcare, universal pre-K, making permanent the child tax credit, and it includes paid family and medical leave. And I have to say that all of these programs are in the interests of the private sector. Because it's all about there's so much data that shows the lost productivity of family caregivers from lack of good caregiving services and access to the care that their families need.
1: It's really interesting to hear about all the momentum and the debate you know, in the United States right now that's you know really looking at fundamentally redefining some very basic ways that we think about the structure of our economy, things like what counts as infrastructure. And the way we used to think about it, of course, is framed in an industrial era, as opposed to now where a lot of the productivity of our economies is people-powered, not just plants and machinery, and, and how do we support people's potential, as you put it, unlocking human potential. Can you talk a little bit about how you see this conversation playing out around the world? Um, we have listeners tuning in from all over the globe, and and obviously these issues do have a specific nature and context. But the, the care economy is something that I imagine is underappreciated in many other parts of the world as well. And has your work touched upon
0: that? Yes. Well, we have for many years been a part of a global conversation about elevating the value of care work around the world. We are part of a global federation of domestic workers organizations called the International Domestic Worker Federation that worked together to pass the first Convention on Domestic Work, Convention 189. And it has been ratified by more than 20 countries globally, and we're still working to get it ratified by more. But it's really just the beginning of a conversation about what you mentioned, which is what is essential infrastructure for the 21st century globally. When we think about the definition of infrastructure, we think about bridges and tunnels, but the actual definition is that which enables society to function and that which makes economic activity possible. In the 21st century, it is both true that we need a different set of infrastructure to make society function and I'm thinking about broadband access and and sustainable safe waterways and all of that. And I think there's also a new awareness that we have about the ways in which our previous models have devalued essential resources. 30, 40 years ago, Gloria Steinem wrote an article called Revaluing Economics, where she talked about the fact that our economic model is based off of the invisibilizing and the exploitation of two essential forms of resources, the planet's natural resources and caregiving labor, women's work in the home and in the family. And if we are to have a sustainable model for the 21st century and beyond, we have to fundamentally revalue and rethink how we invest in and protect those resources as at the core of our economic model. And so I think when we think about infrastructure, we have to think about that. We have to really think about how are we protecting and investing in the sustainability of our natural resources and the resources that allow us to care for our families across the lifespan. As I said earlier, with advances in healthcare and technology, people are living longer than ever, much, much longer than when most of our national safety nets were put into place. So we have to rethink what it looks like to invest in caregiving and invest in a dignified quality of life across the lifespan. And every country needs to take that up. I think. And the private sector has a huge role to play in supporting and complementing and flanking public efforts to enact collective solutions to these challenges, both addressing our historic failures to invest in these resources and really thinking boldly about what it looks like to invest in the future.
1: I want to spend some time talking about this this point you raised about like how do we actually get from where we are today and that you know, incredible vision that you outlined. Uh, you talked about some of the efforts from government um, and the opportunities that are on the table as we speak. One thing you've said that really resonated with me is, and I'm quoting you here, um, I believe that some of the most important solutions and ideas about the future are being born right now in the margins and shadows of our country. Can you talk a little bit about that point? Because I do think it's incredibly powerful. Of we often think of the solutions as things to be discovered, and one of the things that we talk about a lot on the Next Normal is that many of the solutions have been with us. There's a quote about you know glimmers of future that are here in the present and now. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that when it comes to the care economy?
0: We often describe domestic workers as the original gig economy workers. And ultimately, I see domestic workers as real futurists because they have for generations experienced the same insecurity and dynamics that are becoming more pervasive in the labor market today. The idea that you would be working, piecing together different jobs from different clients, that you would not have access to a safety net, not have predictable hours or schedule, not have a clear job description, not have any job security. So there has always been a set of workers and these workers have for most of US history been largely women of color and immigrant women and women of marginalized social status who've done this work and in the edges of our economy, they have experienced what has become more and more pervasive as our economy has evolved, as we've shifted towards a service-based economy and a globalized economy. More and more of us are working in parts of our economic model and structure that are insecure in ways that are deeply reminiscent to how domestic workers have always worked. And their attempts, therefore, to establish protections, to enhance or affirm the dignity of their work, to gain access to benefits and job security, are the seeds, I think, of how we need to be reimagining protections and support for workers in the next economy. And domestic workers have been innovating. And in our innovation lab, we've built a portable benefits platform that allows for domestic workers with multiple employers, multiple clients to each contribute on a prorated basis to a benefits fund that she then gets to decide what benefit she wants to apply the money in her fund towards. And it's portable, it follows her. And we deliberately designed that portable benefits product in such a way that was really designing for the hardest use case, the person that would be the hardest to design for or to solve for. And I, I really think that there's so many of our nations and our global problems that if we solved for the hardest use case, the person who is the hardest to solve for, we would have so many systems and programs that would work so much better for all of us. We would ensure that so many people who've been historically left behind are actually a part of the solution. Yeah, and
1: I really admire the work that you're doing through your lab because I, I do think this isn't how we usually think about innovation, um, but it's absolutely where we need to solve big systemic problems. One of the things that I'm always interested in is what people can do to contribute to these big systemic shifts. You know, We talk about the role of big institutions with incredible authority and power. Obviously you're organizing communities, um, but what would you like to see from our listeners to help support this transition to an inclusive and sustainable care economy?
0: I really believe that this is a moment where we need the private sector to acknowledge the places where the market is simply not going to solve for a challenge that we have, and certainly not alone. Care, for example, is one of those challenges that I think is so clear where the market is not going to solve this. We actually need government to play a really strong role in helping us build the care economy that we know we need and deserve that will be beneficial for the market (laughs) when it is strong and secure So instead of, I think, what is the dominant model, which is to try to limit the role of government, that we actually lean into the places where we know we need government and that the role of the private sector is really to support the kinds of innovation that are harder to achieve through government alone. And working in partnership, I think, with philanthropy and the social sector to really do that innovation with the right incentives, right? Where we're really solving for equity and opportunity as opposed to just greater margins.
1: You know, as we begin to come towards a close in our lightning round before we, we wrap up, one thing that I, I want to talk about is just like what the near term future looks like. And, you know, we talked about how the pandemic has put a spotlight on the issues with our care economy and the deeper structure of our, our system. Hopefully the pandemic will subside soon and we will all feel a degree of, you know, um, of safety that we haven't felt in quite some time. You're also um, you know, talking about driving deeper systemic shifts in the structure of our economy and the way we value workers who are often seen as invisible. How are you thinking about maintaining the urgency on this issue as what I hope is a fading focus on the pandemic and what I expect to be a bit more oxygen for the conversation about what we want the next normal to look like?
0: Well, I think telling the story of how many caregivers and women were pushed out of the workforce in the pandemic because of a lack of caregiving infrastructure and adequate programs to support us. And the idea that if we want to get back to work and we want the economy to grow again, but grow in an equitable and sustainable way, that we have to think differently about how we're investing in caregiving. And Right now, you know, we need to hear from everyone in the private sector, investors, saying that this is urgent. This is in our interest. And we should not be shortchanging this once in a generation opportunity to build the kind of infrastructure we need in this country that's in everyone's interest. I know there's a care economy business roundtable of businesses that have signed on to support the Build Back Better care agenda. I think that kind of action is so important because there are going to be many members of Congress who are going to be afraid of the dollar signs behind this agenda. And really, this is a moment where the cost of doing too little is far greater than the cost of doing too much. And we need to hear that message from the private sector. And we need for there to be a willingness to have and push corporations to pay their fair share into our public infrastructure so that we can make these programs possible. It's just so practical and so much about our generational responsibility to our children and to our grandchildren and our planet that when we have this moment to reset our economy for the next era, we can't think small about it, and we can't think about it the way that we've thought about incrementalism all these years. We have to think big, and we have to take risks and and ultimately make some sacrifices.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's really powerful the way you frame a lot of these issues is not just being a moral imperative, but also an economic imperative. Because I do think in many parts of the world, we're seeing the unsustainability of the labor markets as they've been structured and this vulnerability of our systems, you know, lack of resilience, a fragility to shocks, whether it's a global health shock or what we will expect to see more of, unfortunately, as a result of climate change, we will have more kind of disruptive shocks shaping our system. And I think the way in which we build that human infrastructure and the resilience will be so critical. One of the last things we do every session of the podcast is ask our guests to to go through a lightning round. As you think about the future of our economic system, which country or community do you have your eye on?
0: I have my eye on Washington State in the United States, where they have raised the base pay of home care workers to starting salary of $12 an hour, which is still too low, but it's a much higher starting point than other states. They've created a home care workforce training fund that trains 40,000 home care workers per year in 12 different languages. It's the second largest educational institution in the state after the University of Washington. They have ongoing education pop-ups in rural communities. They have a social insurance fund for long-term care to help people afford it who are not eligible for Medicaid. And as a result, they are the state and the country, I believe, that is most prepared for the coming age wave. Now, it's not perfect. I don't know that it's the model, but it is a place where they have challenged themselves to take this on in a proactive way, in a way that reflects how urgent and important it is.
1: Similarly, you know, as you are thinking about what you'd like to see in your vision for economic system, which leader do you have your eye on?
0: I have my eye on a woman named April Varet, who is the leader of SEIU Local 2015, which is the largest union of home care workers in the country in California. She is a Black woman who is determined to give this workforce of essential workers, a voice and the dignity and the respect that it deserves and has been a fierce champion and I think has really uplifted the experiences of this workforce and the pandemic in a way that is deeply moving and very much needed.
1: What is the single best book you can recommend on this topic?
0: Ooh, what came to mind, it's actually not exactly on this topic, but Atul Gawande's book Being Mortal is a book that I keep coming back to because it is so much about how our healthcare system has really been overly defined by extending our lifespan as opposed to enhancing our quality of life. And for me, caregiving is all about investing in our quality of life across the lifespan. And what would it look like to? invest all the money that we invest in keeping people alive at all cost, towards keeping people living dignified lives at all cost.
1: The last question is one I'm sure you would take very seriously because someone gave you as an answer to this question. Um, but if you could recommend that we interview only one more person on this topic, who would it be?
0: Well, somebody that I go to on a regular basis who gives me the hot take on what's happening in our economy in ways that are incredibly useful for my work is an economist at Harvard named Larry Katz. He's quite a brilliant labor economist and also very geared towards solutions.
1: Ijen, I'm so grateful for your time with us. Um, There's so many things that struck me, but I, I think the focus on unleashing human potential and kind of rewriting the relationship between the market, government, um, and how they work together to better provide for people and for quality of life, I think is such a fundamental purpose. Thank you so much for your time and for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me. It's been a great conversation.
1: To our listeners, thank you for joining us. Please be certain to subscribe to this podcast, rate it in your podcast app, and then share your thoughts about iGen's vision for our Next Normal on social media. Our Next Normal community knows that money can do so much more than just make more money. And with your help, we're aiming to show the world how. Until next time, take care and stay safe.